Hello and welcome to the Only Spans podcast, a podcast that I still can't believe CoreLogix actually gave me money to make. We're going to cover everything from DevOps, cloud observability, cloud architecture, and much, much more. All great ideas that are going to level up your craft and make you a much better engineer and hopefully save your company a little bit of money in the process. All of this, and we're not going to take ourselves too seriously, so that when you're in your bed at 3am and that production alarm goes off, you are 100% ready to go. Let's get started. The cost of observability. Oh my fucking God. Um, yeah, this has become quite a hot topic in the past uh, few years. I've actually given several talks at conferences about it, and I will say that it is a real minefield. Um, I used to be the principal engineer for a large company, and we had lots of contracts with lots of different observability providers. They were all good. You know, they, they actually, a lot of them provided great services. Um, but it was when the invoice came and we were like, wait a minute, like you're processing our logs. Why does this cost us a million a year? Like what's, what's going on here exactly? Um, the truth is, is that the cost has skyrocketed. It, p- people are often gaslit to just, oh, you have a lot of data. You're not being efficient, blah, blah, blah. It's the cost has just gone up extraordinarily. Um, so in this episode, I thought it'd be really nice to start digging into why, what are the major reasons for the cost uh, increasing? Why is, um, is it simply greed or is it just the, um, or is, is it, is there something that's changed economically or technically? Um, then we'll talk about some of the techniques you can use for optimizing cost. Um, like I said, I've actually delivered a talk on this exact topic that you can see on YouTube. If you search for, um, it'll be London, uh, DevOps days, 2023 observability is too damn expensive, which is also the title of this episode. And that'll just give you some insights into what um, what's going on. So we'll begin by just setting the scene. What's actually happening in the world of um, DevOps and software engineering that's driving up the cost of observability? Um, before we do that, I actually work for an observability provider called CoreLogix. They're amazing. Um, important things to remember, we are the only company that I know of um, that are offering really powerful cost optimization tools as part of the platform. So everybody else will offer you these little techniques. Oh, you can archive your data, that kind of thing. We're the only ones that are really taking a stance on cost optimization um, and, and, and trying to be transparent and upfront and honest and essentially putting the power into the hands of the users for how to optimize their costs with a ton of help from us, of course. Uh, but the idea is to be cost transparent. Anyway, the reasons for the spike in observability. So number one is really straightforward. Um, microservices, good old microservices, <laughs> fucking never ends. Um, microservices have become a real fucking um, double-edged sword. So they came about, really, microservices came about because we were trying to make it so our architecture could scale um, independently, different different features of the application could scale. Um, and also we could deploy, make small regular deployments without constantly deploying these massive big batch solutions. And we've succeeded, actually. We that, 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 The microservices architecture that we have today and the, the patterns that we've got today have meant that software moves faster and changes faster and much more safely than has ever really been happened in the past. So with that uh, thing in mind, we've it's, it's gone really well. It has come at some costs, though, um, mostly to years off my fucking life, but also um, a few other things. So one is, um, now you've got all these different services. If one of those services fail... You know, in a monolithic application, if something failed, what tend to happen was the whole thing would just burst into flames. So the task of observability is, is there a giant flaming wreck? <laughs> and um, the answer was often no. And then you just moved on with your life. Happy days. Um, 
this is obviously uh, different in a microservices architecture because now you've got all these different services that are all interdependent on one another in lots and lots of different ways. And these different services are all saying, well, if I fail, you have circuit breakers and you've got all sorts of different clever things in place to make sure that your, um, your applications are working. By the way, a circuit breaker, just in case you're interested, let's say you've got two applications that depend on each other and one of them fails. And so one of the applications keeps retrying over and over and over and over again. And what happens is it's essentially retrying, but new requests are coming in. And so it's it's like ramping up the um, the retries and original tries and then retries. The whole thing keeps failing. It becomes this like cycle of death where more and more requests are being retried over and over again. Horrible. Uh, what a circuit breaker will do is it'll identify that pattern and it will stop it. So in Java, for example, you've got tools like Hystrix that came out of Netflix. as just an example of how to actually implement these kinds of things in case you're interested. So because of all this new complexity, because of all these new bizarre failure modes, we kind of needed more data. And because we have more applications running on different servers, different containers, again, we need servers about those ser- and metrics about those servers and those containers, and on and on and on. So it becomes a real problem of just a sheer, sharp increase in the volume of data. The second problem is um, our infrastructure is a lot more ephemeral now. So even if, um, so, you know, monoliths wasn't really possible with because it took so long for them to start up and shut down. With microservices now, they start up really fast often um, and they, they, they can shut down really quickly as well and really cleanly, often stateless as well. What all of this means is that your microservices um, are up, jumping around all the time, moving to different servers, the servers underneath them are crashing and, and whatever's happening or like spot instances, for example, in AWS, uh, where you can like rent a server, but at some point it will just be taken away from you, but you get it for a really great price and you have to have all these monitors in place to make sure that the the server, the, the applications that are running on those servers can move to a different location. Really powerful cost optimization tool for the cloud, but not particularly good um, for your, um, for the, it actually increases natural chaos in your infrastructure, which is a good thing. We'll go into chaos in a second. But um, again, what all that means is that you've got more failure modes because not only have you got servers crashing for errors, you've got servers just disappearing as part of the normal operation of your cluster. Third and final, a bit of chaos engineering. So uh, I used to love chaos engineering when I was writing code every day. Um, just, I think it's because I like destroy, destroying stuff. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but now I, uh, I, see, I really see the value of it, actually. Um, I remember trying to explain chaos engineering to a business person and he was like, he turned to me, I gave him like a 15-minute presentation on the subject and he went... So you're just like fucking destroying stuff. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. We're kind of measuring the outcome. And he was like, why don't we just get some consultants in and do disaster recovery failovers? And I was like, oh God, here we fucking go. So what I'm trying to say to you guys is chaos engineering has introduced new failure modes intentionally. So these practices have actually driven up the number of data. And what, what's actually happening, this is just three examples, but there's lots of different things. Our software is more complex, it does more. All of that is driving up our data. Now, the natural response to that is, of course, well, we've got too much data. Let's just fix that. We just need less data. And the question then is is, is really interesting. Um, do we have too much data? Do we have a data problem or do we have a complexity problem? And I, I reckon, and this is me, 10 years as a software engineer, five years as an SRE, a few years as a principal engineer, and now the advocate for an observability company. So I've, I've been involved in this space for a while. And the thing that I've seen is actually companies generally have as much data as they do because at some point they've needed it. Now, some companies are just wasteful, you know, that's crazy, but often they're not, actually. The data has a purpose, a function. And when you say, let's just delete most most of it, or let's just delete half of it, you are essentially making a big, big, dangerous gamble. 
Um, so, so this this spike in data has done a few things to observability providers, especially the SaaS based ones, but also the in house as well. Is um, they now have more data to manage, so their infrastructure needs to be more sophisticated. They essentially have what we used to call a big data problem. That, that phrase seems to have died now, and I'm fucking happy about that. Whether I hated it, do we have a big data problem here? No, you don't. It fits in RAM. Grow up. Um, but the, the sorry, <laughs> we've unlocked a rant. Um, the the essence of what we're saying here is that um, the, the 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 things have all conspired. All these different uh, variables have conspired to make it more difficult for observability providers to manage all this data. Most of them are still running on architectures from ten or fifteen years ago that just existed before this problem happened. So now we have a new problem uh, in in the world of observability, and that's managing this data. And often, what has to happen, we have to put more work in. The infrastructure is more expensive, and so the unit cost increases. That's just economics. If if the cost of doing business increases, the cost of the goods increase as well. Um. Now, this is where I start getting a bit spicy and a bit controversial. I think that most observability companies are really, really poor with how they manage data. And um, in the world of data science, this is kind of like a well-understood problem. Um, and I think we're a little bit behind the data scientists on this one. So um, we've just to, just to recap, we've covered the reasons why this, the price is going up, essentially. Um, now, there's a few facts that we actually learned. At CoreLogix, we're running all these... Um, sort of meta-analyses all the time to try and better understand what's going on in the system. And um, what we found is that um, a few really interesting things. So one, uh, most queries don't exceed seven days. That's for logs in that case. Uh, logs is, most of this is about logs because logs are really expensive. Also, this applies to traces as well. Traces even more so. In the, in the, in the case of traces, um, a lot of companies are only querying the past couple of days worth of traces. They're not doing a lot of historical analysis yet. And I'll get on to why they're not doing that in a second. But the really important point here is that um, most queries, 99.99% of queries don't exceed seven days. That's the result of meta-analysis that we've done inside CoreLogix, like anonymized data that we've realized. Um, and yet the average retention period is between two and four weeks. And we hold on to it. And again, you know, we hold on to it because we've essentially married two ideas together, indexing and analytics. You see, indexing is the act of like keeping track of where all these fields are and making it so they can be really quickly queried. Um, but, and here's another fact for you, 99% of the data that's indexed is never fucking queried. So what we're doing is we're taking our data and we're saying, okay, I need to be able to search all of this between two and four weeks. And then 99% of the time, never searching it. If you index data and then never search it, you've just wasted money. There's no other way around it. It's just, that's the end of the conversation. So what this means for you as a, as a, as a company is that the most expensive thing you can do, index your logs and your traces, um, is the thing that you're taking the least possible advantage of. Like, how interesting is that? Like, such a weird outcome that I never would have actually anticipated, but there we go. Um, that's the beauty of doing data-driven analysis. So um, there's one. So over seven days, um, most queries don't exceed seven days. 99% of index data is never queried. Another fact for you, and this one like really blew my mind, uh, on average, 30% of data ingested, um, and this is actually, um, we've we've spoken to lots of different partners and lots of different providers and who have in-house solutions, and we've, we've kind of been working at this for a while, but 30% of the data that's ingested is never even touched. Okay, so when I say, when I said before that 99% of index data is never searched, it's possible that, that data drives dashboards, or it's possible that, that data drives um, uh, alarms or, or machine learning algorithms or something. Um, but it's it's just not searched. 
but 30% is never even touched. If you've got a million dollar bill from one of the observability platforms, $300,000 of that is potentially waste, you know? Um, this is often down to a few things. One is the high prevalence of low-level logs. So uh, trace and debug logs tend to take up about 25% of logging uh, data, but they very, very, very rarely are queried, extremely infrequently queried. Those are some of the stats anyway. And I think they're, I think they're pretty interesting because um, for a number of reasons. What it points to actually is that we haven't got too much data. Um, we don't have a data problem as such. We have a cost optimization problem. We have a data analysis problem, but we don't have a problem of simply having too much data because while 30% of the data is never touched, okay, right, that needs to go, okay? Uh, but the rest of the data is doing something. It's just that we've married up again, we've married up indexing and analytics so that what we're doing is we're essentially saying, okay, um, the the if, if I want to do anything with this data, it has to be indexed. And indexing is the most expensive possible thing I can do with my data. So what that, when you put that together, it's like, okay, if I want to do anything with my data, I have to do the most expensive thing. So our challenge in the observability industry, and one that CoreLogix is killing it at right now, is this. Uh, how do I analyze my data without having to go through the pain of indexing it? Yeah? Uh, ever without having to go through the pain of ever indexing it. So that, that's a really important distinction as well. A lot of people out there will say, oh, we do index-free analytics. But actually what they say is, well, you index it first, you store it in high-performance storage for like a week, and then you'll put it into your archive, and then you can maybe do some stuff with it. Um, don't trust it. It's bollocks. Uh, what that means is that you still pay them a bunch of money. Um, so I would be, I'd, I'd be cautious of many of the index-free solutions out there. The other side of the index-free solutions is that it, it doesn't take into account the urgency of this data as well. So what they do is they'll say, well, we'll, we'll take indexing away and um, we will, uh, you can just like completely query everything, none of it's indexed. The problem is, is that those inde the indexes exist for a reason. They exist so you can quickly query your data. It's really, really important. And what they're essentially saying is that, okay, we're going to remove the abilities that indexing offers, which is fast, high-performant, and consistently high-performant queries as well. Um, that's a dangerous game to play if you've got a serious outage at 3 a.m. You need fast queries. So at CoreLogix, and, and just generally my opinion as an engineer, is this. We need to be use-case-driven with our data. So now we've, we've moved on now. So we started out by discussing the causes and the reasons why um, the cost of observability is going up. And then we started to talk about some of the analysis that we've done to try and understand, well, what is it that's actually triggering these things? What is it that's actually like, driving these um, these behaviours, if you like? And then finally, now we're going to have a talk about what you can actually do about it and, and what, you, what, what matters. So number one, um, stop indexing everything, okay? You have some options. So for example, let's imagine an open source solution right now. You've got FluentD, or let's say OpenTelemetry. Everyone loves OpenTelemetry. It's fucking cool. Um, you've got OpenTelemetry running on a Kubernetes cluster and you have an open search stack, you know, the usual stuff, Grafana, whatever, uh, and Kibana for querying your logs or uh, Open Dashboard now, I think it's called. So you add all that together and what you essentially say is, okay, my really important operational stuff, the stuff that I need to be able to query fast, so these are things like error logs, debug logs, logs from certain critical applications, that can all go into open search, okay. But like the CTO's pet project that doesn't need to go into open search. Like it's just like, it sprays out debug logs. It just annoys everybody and it clutters up the UI. 
It doesn't need to go into open search. Think about it like this. Open, your open search cluster is your like SEAL team six of data. It's the stuff that like you've trained for. These are the best of the best, the most important, the cream of the crop. This is as good as it gets. They're the best. Um, and you're saying, okay, just let everyone in, you know? What you need to be is very selective with your um, with your open search data, the stuff that you actually decide to index and hold in high-performance storage. And the way you can do that, for example, is, if you want one easy example, push straight to S3. You can do that via Kibana in AWS or Firehose, or you can do GCP Cloud Storage, you know, Azure, Buckets, that kind of thing, whatever. Whatever it is, you can export straight from your applications to S3 or to a cloud storage, low-volume block storage, essentially. And what that means is that you can still hold that data, you can still re-ingest that data if you need to, but it's held in very, very low-cost storage. It doesn't slow down your queries or your or your application. It doesn't increase the running cost of your open search cluster with useless, pointless information. And what that what that use sort of use case-driven approach will do for you, which is really magical, actually, I think this is really, really cool, is it will essentially say, okay, you get the best of both worlds. You still have the data if you need it for compliance reasons or historical analysis, but all your really important operational stuff, that's still there. You still get the best. So that's one thing, being use case driven. And while I'm here, um, before you before you start deciding, okay, this is this is low cost storage, this is high cost storage, do some usage analysis. So for example, Prometheus offers usage query logging, uh, OpenSearch offers slow query logging. And if you're feeling brave, then you can change the definition of a slow query from you know, 10 seconds to zero seconds, and then everything is a slow query. Bit scary. <laughs> um, but if, you know, if you're feeling ambitious, that's one the one thing you can do. There are a few other methods as well available to you. My point is, is that develop some usage stats. And once you know what data is being accessed more than others, make some use cases, okay? Three, maybe no more than five of like, okay, logs that are being queried constantly or logs that only drive dashboards or logs that are just turned into metrics or something, logs that are treated like metrics, blah, blah, blah. Um, try and get to about five because what it's going to do is speed up the decision-making process of the whole the whole operation here. And essentially what you can do is say, okay, um, I've got some logs, and I want to turn them into, um, I, I want to use them. I just, I just use them for these dashboards. Okay. What you really have in real terms are metrics, you know, you have logs, but you're just not using any of them. And so you're paying to index it. You're paying for the overhead, but actually you just need one number out of there. So that's what usage statistics do for you is they give you an idea of how the data is being used. Then you can start being use case driven about, okay, this goes into cloud storage, this goes into open search. Maybe there's a third tier that goes into like some you know, medium speed storage, like cold nodes in your open search cluster, for example. That's that's part of what you can do. Another thing you can do is um, transform your data. So if you've got logs, um, just turn them into metrics. If you only ever use one value out of them, you can do that really easily. An application that consumes logs from, uh, you know, your cloud storage or from open search, deletes the original documents and publishes the metrics as Prometheus metrics and have, have your Prometheus agent scrape them. You know, you can do that. That's not a problem. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to do this actually, but the point is, is really straightforward. Holding on to metrics for a really long time is not very expensive and it's still high performance. Holding on to logs for a really long time, that's expensive. So what are we saying? Essentially, 
you don't index everything. You don't have to store the data in its original format and you don't have to, um, you, and you should be use case driven with how that data is stored. And when you add all that together, th- these these techniques alone, there's a bunch of other stuff you can do around high cardinality metrics and stuff that I'll get into in later episodes. But these are all techniques that you can do to try and drive up the um, the cost optimization in your organization. Keep the data that you need. Because remember, you, you don't really have a data problem. You have a data analytics problem. And those are subtly different things. Um, yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna cut that here uh, because there's so much to go on. If you want to see like a more in-depth version of this, uh, go on YouTube, look for um, DevOps Days London 2023. Uh, observability is too damn expensive. Or just do DevOps London 2023, Chris Cooney. That's me. That will catch you up with the, um, with the, with that. There's a much more in-depth sort of dive into what you can do with this data. Um, and yeah, so just to recap, here's, here's my assessment. Uh, we don't have a data problem. We have a data analysis problem. We don't have a cost problem. We have a cost optimization problem. Um, and those two things mean that the power is very much in our hands to create um, different configurations, different tools, different layers, if you like, in our infrastructure that are going to enable us to cost optimize more effect- effectively. If you can't be asked, or you just don't have the time or the resources to build all that into your system, check out the CoreLogix website because we do all this. This is our game, baby. This is what we're good at. Um, we absolutely kill it. Um, we are the best in the industry at this kind of thing. There's no one that even comes close to us in this in this arena. We regularly save people like 70% on their bill. I'm not trying to sell you this because I get commission or anything from CoreLogix. I don't. I'm selling you this because as an engineer, I wish someone had told me about this stuff years ago. Um, I would have saved companies a lot of money instead of be just building the most wasteful possible solutions ever. Um, so yeah, check out CoreLogix if you're struggling with the cost observability and that's why you're listening to this episode. We can definitely, definitely save you a bunch of money there. So I'll cut it off there. Thank you very much for listening today. Next episode, um, I'd love to get some messages from you guys. So um, I'm on Twitter at Chris underscore Cooney, C-H-R-I-S underscore C-O-O-N-E-Y. Um, message me, tweet me, whatever. Tell me what you'd like to hear next. Um, I'd love to understand more about what the problems are that you guys are facing so I can do the research and hopefully put some useful assets together for you. Thank you very much.